wail. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning angry and anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. Wail, woe because of that day. For a day is near, a day belonging to the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come against Egypt, and there will be anguish in Cush when the slain fall in Egypt, and its wealth is taken away, and its foundations are demolished. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Malachi, all talking about this theme, this day of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, and especially here in the prophets, it is a a key theme and a key phrase, and one that we're going to work to understand this morning. It's used five times in the book of Joel, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And it's it's not just a day. This doesn't represent one day. It represents an acute, intense interaction with the Lord, particularly interaction with His judgment. Sometimes prophets talk about the day of the Lord in terms of the Lord's ongoing judgment of the people of Israel. Sometimes they talk about much larger things, conquering their enemies, judging their enemies. Sometimes they refer to days when Yahweh will deliver his people as the day of the Lord. And Joel is going to do a little bit of all of those things. He's going to use this phrase to display all of those concepts to us. Besides just speaking of this day of the Lord, there are a number of similarities here in Joel with the other prophets, particularly the minor prophets. And that's because a lot of these writings, a lot of how they're communicating to the people of Israel is through poems, poetry. They use this poetry to draw clear but startling pictures of the horror of their sin, the mightiness and holiness, the power of God, but also His gentleness, His love, His grace, His mercy and goodness when they repent. And we are going to see all of that today in the book of Joel. They also wrote and communicated in these poems because it allowed them to do something very interesting. They could talk about the impending, imminent relationship with God, interaction with God. They could also talk about bigger, longer-term things like the exile and returning to Jerusalem. And then they could also talk about huge overarching themes of God delivering His people and judging the nations all at the same time with this cosmic, crazy kind of imagery. And these poems allowed them to do that. Now, I'm sure there are a few of you in here who are thinking to yourself, hey, I might have maybe heard some of this before, and it's because these kind of concepts I learned and were laid out by some 
great teachers who put together something called the Bible Project. They put together these really awesome videos. They're just like five, six, seven minutes. And as we go through these books of the prophets this summer, I would encourage you to listen to some of those videos about how to read and interpret the poetry of the Old Testament, about how to read and interpret the prophets. I promise you, it will just give you a little bit better framework for how to understand them, to just wrestle with them, to approach them. And so in light of that, I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we are going to dive into the book of Joel. Dear Heavenly Father, you are strong and good, you are just and merciful, you are holy, high above us, gracious and powerful. And God, and God, we are not those things. We are a people who often walk astray, who are not faithful, who forget about your power and your plan and your love for us, who try to go around you who try to subvert your plans, who try to make our own plans. But we're thankful this morning, Lord, as we come before your word, thankful all the more for your mercy, all the more that you are faithful. We're thankful for this wonderful church, a place where we can come and we can sing and we can pray and we can read your word. We're thankful for the wonderful opportunities you've given us to be on on mission in your, as a part of your church in this community and around the world, people who love your church and love your word and love your mission. And as we come to the book of Joel this morning, I ask that you would show us your truth through this deep literature, through these images, through these poems, that your spirit would be active in revealing that truth to us in Um, in changing our hearts and changing our deeds and changing our desires. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I talked about all sorts of similarities, but the book of Joel is unique for a couple of reasons. Um, First, we don't know exactly when it was written. Um, There's some people who dated all the way back in like the 8th century B.C., some as recent as the 2nd century B.C. But in recent years and amongst evangelical circles, nearly everyone has accepted that it was written right before the exile to Babylon or or right after. Um, there's, There's a strong case to be made before just because of some of the way that Joel talks to the people. Um... He speaks especially about the people of Judah and almost like they're a very arrogant people, a people who are puffed up, a people who can't imagine that they would ever be cast out of the land, a people who can't imagine that they would ever be under the judgment of the Lord. Um, And that would certainly have been a characteristic of the people before the exile. But at the same time, Joel doesn't talk about any kings, um, which would really point us to after the exile. If you look at the other prophets who are before, they almost always always identify their time frame and their mission with the time of king whoever. And Joel doesn't do that. So luckily for us, I don't think it, it matters too much whether it was before or after, but, but what does matter is the second point of uniqueness, and that, that is Joel is the only prophet who does not 
identify a unique sin. He doesn't say, Israel, the Lord is going to judge you for idolatry. He doesn't say the Lord is going to judge you for disregarding the poor. He says the Lord is going to judge you. And he says that because Joel is a great reader and studier of the word. As you read through the book of Joel, you see Exodus, you see Deuteronomy, you see Hosea, Amos, Nahum, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a number, another, a number of other writings. So when he thinks about the judgment of the Lord, it's very obvious to him. He thinks it's very obvious to the people he would have been teaching. And, and church, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our hearts, it's pretty obvious to us why we would be under the judgment of the Lord. So I want you to keep that in mind and be honest with yourselves and have your own sins and struggles in the forefront of your mind as we read, starting in chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it, and let your children tell their children, and their children tell the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. I don't know about you. I don't deal with many locust swarms. I don't really know anything about locust swarms. Do they still happen? Are they a big deal? Certainly a big deal then. Would they be a big deal now? How many locusts are we talking about? And I looked it up, and they're a big deal, and they still happen. Two years ago, 2020, this swarm of locusts, which by the way are basically grasshoppers, ripped through the nation of Kenya. They estimated over 100 billion locusts. That's like with a B. It covered 900 square miles. That is nothing but bugs from here to Dallas, three miles wide. That is a lot of bugs. It could eat as much as all of the people in Texas and New York combined every single day. I can't even get kill them to keep the cockroaches out of my garage. Don't get me started on 100 billion bucks. That is terrifying. It's terrifying. And in light of this crazy event, this nightmare, Joel goes straight into calling the people of Israel to grieve. And to grieve deeply. To grieve for themselves. To grieve for the livestock. To grieve for the orchards. To grieve for the fields. To wail. To dress in sackcloth. He calls them to come together in a solemn assembly, to fast, to cry out to the Lord. He really hits home in verse 9. He talks about that the grain offering and the drink offering, they're being cut off. The priests are left to mourn. Joel is like trying to shake these people. Wake up. This is a big deal. And it's about a lot more than not having enough food. Which, by the way, was a big deal. This is about separation from the Lord, division from the Lord. Think about it. Think about the other 
really famous locust swarm in the Bible. It's a plague in Egypt, right? The same punishment that God unleashed on the nation of Egypt, he's now unleashing on these people. Read with me again verse 15. Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Hasn't the food been cut off before your eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of the Lord. The seeds lie shriveled in their casings. The storehouses are in ruin and the granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep and goats suffer punishment. I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pasture of the wilderness, and the flames have devoured all the trees of the orchard. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds have dried up, and fire has consumed the pasture of the wilderness. The day of the Lord. And as expected, it is a day of judgment. But it's not a day of judgment that is narrow in scope just on these people. It's broad in its scope. It's overarching. It's comprehensive. It affects everything. The food, the animals, the livestock, the pastures, the land itself being consumed by fire. Comprehensive destruction and separation. And as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't clear enough, Joel just decides, I'm going to say the same thing over again. I'm going to write another poem, but this time even more explicit. This time using more spiritual language. Listen to it in chapter 2 and verse 1. Blow the ram's horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generation to come. Again, there is judgment and condemnation, but this time, Joel leaves no room for misinterpretation. He leaves no room for the people of Israel. Oh, this is some force of nature. This is some random event. This is an event sent specifically by God to and onto his people. He's describing his judgment not just as a locust, but as this great and terrible army. He says in verse 3 that the land is like the garden of Eden ahead of them and like a a burned wilderness, or a burned barren wasteland behind them. In verse 10, he says, the earth quakes before them, and the sky shakes, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars cease their shining. The Lord makes His voice heard in the presence of the army. His camp is very large. Those who who carry out His command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure this onslaught from the Lord? Who can endure this radical 
interaction with a holy God. And to answer that question appropriately, I think we need to reorient ourselves a little bit. I think we need to put on our our Hebrew sunglasses, our Hebrew lenses, and think a little bit about this from their perspective. And very often, a perspective that is helpful is a perspective of blessing and curse. Now, these people would have thought in these terms, and, and don't get me wrong, this is not like a hashtag blessed kind of a thing. That is not what it means. Blessing to them was about flourishing, about living under the Lord's blessing. Blessing to them goes all the way back to the garden, all the way back to living and trusting reliance in the provision of God. It goes further, right, with Adam's commandment of stewardship in the garden, that for people, for the image bearers of God, blessing is not just enjoying the gifts of God, it is dispersing the gifts of God. It is managing, stewarding the gifts of God, the flourishing of His world. And in the same way, there's a curse. There is... Things didn't work out exactly like that. Adam and Eve tried to subvert, tried to bypass, tried to get their own blessing, tried to do it their own way. And the result is not flourishing. The result is death and suffering entering the world. The result is curse. Deuteronomy 28 lays this out for us very clearly and I'll read starting in verse 1 it says now if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow his commandments I'm giving you today the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth all these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God and you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country your offspring will be blessed and your lands produce and the offspring of your livestock including the young of your herds and the newborn of the flocks your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed you will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out Moses goes on and on from here into more and more detail about the blessing of living under God's provision. And just like the judgment day of the Lord was comprehensive in, his, in its scope, the blessing of the Lord is comprehensive. You hear it in Deuteronomy. He talks about the land, the animals, the people. Blessed, flourishing, safe, secure. If they follow his commandments. If they obey his commands. And on the other hand, further down in chapter 28, Moses describes the curse of disobedience. He describes that this flourishing is not going to be there when they are not obeying, when they are not following the Lord. Moses recalls almost, like, almost the exact same phrases and words about the land and the animals and the people about joy being taken from them. There's death and destruction and invasion. There are swarms of locusts. There are terrible armies. Because of disobedience, because of distrust and disloyalty, because of subverting God's plan for His creation and for His people. 
Now, Joel knew all these passages. Joel knew what Moses had written, and he assumed his readers and that we would know these passages. And so when he asked the question, who can endure it? He wants you to know the answer. He wants you to know that those who can endure the day of the Lord are God's people. God's people who love him and obey him. Which is pretty awesome, but at the same time, still a little terrifying. I'm not that good at obeying. I'm not that good at doing what's right. I don't always trust. I don't always have hope in that. But Joel had hope. And Joel had hope because he didn't stop reading in chapter 28. He kept reading into 29 and into 30 where Moses recounts the covenant of God with his people. He recounts God's faithful to enter his covenant with his people that they may enter into his oath so that he may establish them as his people, that he may be their God just as he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And with all that in mind, blessing and curse, with repentance and restoration, Joel writes these words in verse 12. Even now, even after the armies, even after the locusts, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. This is plain and simple, church. Turn around. Repent. And not just on the outside, not just for show, not just to save face. Don't just tear your clothes, tear your hearts. Joel is calling this people, he is calling us to look intently, inwardly, and deeply about our sin. And he calls us to fast and mourn and weep. He calls them to come together, to drop everything. Nothing is more important than this. To Joel, repentance is urgent. It is sincere and truthful and sorrowful. But repentance to Joel is also not just about you. Repentance is about turning from your sin, but it is also about making God famous. Look at verse 17, where it says, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, Where is their God? Again, this is straight out of Deuteronomy. This time it's chapter 9, and I want to I want to read it for you. This is Moses calling out to the Lord, interceding for his people. It says, I fell down in the presence of the Lord's 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had threatened to destroy you. 
I prayed to the Lord, Lord God, do not annihilate your people, your inheritance, who you redeemed through your greatness and brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Disregard this people's stubbornness and their wickedness and sin. Otherwise, those in the land you brought us will say, because the Lord wasn't able to bring them into the land He had promised them, and because He hated them, He brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. But they are your people, God, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. Church, true heartfelt repentance, sincere repentance, heart tearing repentance is powerful think of the encouragement it can be to the brothers and sisters around you think of the conviction it can be to the brothers and sisters around you we need that church we need to be repenting together to and with one another. Think about the wonderful witness that it is. The, the world today does not have much of a category for repentance. The world today does not have much of a category for I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. It's my fault. I'm sorry. I'm going to turn away from what I've done. And then for your brother and sister to, or sister to really truly forgive you? The world doesn't do that. But Christians do that. Christ followers do that. God obeyers do that. They forgive and they turn and they repent. Why? Why can we do that? Joel happens to tell us. He says in verse 18, this is why. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and he spared his people. The Lord answered his people, look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. Verse 21, it says, Don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness pastures have turned green. In 23, children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. In 25, I will repay you for the year that the swarming locusts ate, my great army that I sent against you. In 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Church, we can and get to be a repentant, loving, forgiving people because we know that the grace of God turns to the destruction and the devastation and the separation of the day of the Lord on its head. Look at it. It's the people, it's the land, it's the animals that we've already talked about. All of that thrown into confusion and chaos and ruin is now restored protected it's brought close it's made secure because of the wonderful works of the Lord separation and division from the Lord put to an end because God's love and mercy and grace for Israel and their rebellion 
And church, I would argue we have it even better than that. We have it even better than the believer of Joel's day because there would be another day of the Lord. And this one is a specific day. A day that hadn't yet come, but has come now. Read with me in 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved God's spirit poured out on all humanity this set of verses what Joel is talking about right here is right now it is the new covenant This day of the Lord was the day of the Lord at Pentecost. Don't believe me? Ask Peter. He was there. Acts 2. When the day of the Lord had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then further down in verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he just reads 28 to 32. Church, we have it better because we get to know Jesus Christ by name. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The things that Joel dedicated his life to to learn and to read and to understand by pouring through these scrolls and scriptures, we have plainly before us and living inside of us. Take time to think about that. Take time to ponder and wonder about your life and your actions and work and play, the things that you say and do in light of this, in light of the fact that what Joel knew by faith, you know by name. In light of the fact that he received, what he received in dribbles and drabs and drops has been poured out on you. Whew, y'all, Joel has taken us on quite a journey. A journey that started out with the shouts of the Lord commanding an army of a hundred billion lion-toothed soldier bugs to judge his people A journey through repentance and grace, forgiveness and restoration. A journey to a new day. 
where all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, where God's people are convicted and encouraged and loved and comforted and filled with the Holy Spirit. And Joel ends that journey here in chapter 3, and he ends it in what he calls the Valley of Decision. A valley where a line is going to be drawn between God's people and the nations. A valley where judgment comes upon those who deny the Lord, but where there is great security for those who call upon His name. If you have any doubt about what side of that line you're on, I pray that today would be the day. Call upon the name of the Lord. Repent. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and took on the curse of God's judgment for you. Believe in the one who conquered sin and death that you might live in his blessing for all time and in all eternity. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the Israelites. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning. We are thankful for this journey. We are thankful but fearful of the day of the Lord. We pray that as we consider that, as we think about that, that, that Lord, we would be drawn to be your people, to repent and believe in the work that you have done, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived and died. I thank you again for this morning and this opportunity to love you, to praise you, to read your scriptures, to sing songs of praise. We do pray that as we go out into the world this week, that we would go out on your mission, that we would go out telling others to repent, telling others of the great news that we know and enjoy every day. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.